Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get exclusive access to regular bonus episodes, including an initiation into the world of rare book collecting, the chance to expand your reading horizons with recommendations from our team of specialised and passionate booksellers, hand-picked classic interviews from our archive, and an insight into what makes your favourite writers tick as they answer searching questions from our cafe's Proust questionnaire. You can now sign up directly in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or for users of other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to all three are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. At one moment, Mahmoud Matan, the protagonist of Nadifa Mohammed's The Fortune Men, is thinking back over his life. It has been, Mohammed writes, one long film, a colour film. It has everything. Comedy, music, dance, travel, murder, the wrong man caught, a crooked trial, a race against time, and then the happy ending. The wife swept up in the hero's arms as he walks out, one sun-filled day to freedom. Which would be all very well, all very possible even, if this wasn't Cardiff, if this wasn't 1952, and if Mahmoud Matan wasn't a black man. As it stands, Mahmoud Matan has to navigate a country shaken by the peeling away of its colonies, and a system consciously and unconsciously stacked against immigrants, that saves its greatest fury, not for those that break its laws, but for those that transgress its codes, as Mahmoud did not only by marrying a white woman, but also by having children with her. Nadifa Mohammed's masterful conjuring of this world and of Mahmoud's ill-fated life is so meticulous, so convincing, that it's sometimes hard to believe she didn't live through that time herself. And yet the Fortune Men also speaks as much to our age as Wales in the 1950s. Indeed, one of the things that makes it such an affecting read is that while a lot may have changed, particularly for people of colour, so much has fundamentally stayed the same. Pankraj Mishra called the Fortune Men a novel of tremendous power, compassion and subtlety adding that it feels unsettlingly timely, while Camilla Shamsi remarked that Nadifa Mohammed deeply understands how lives are shaped, both by the grand sweep of history and the intimate encounters of human beings. The Fortune Men was shortlisted for both the Booker Prize and, as we speak, is also on the shortlist for the Costa Book Award. Nadifa Mohammed, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a pleasure to uh, to be talking to you. And what a what a wonderful book, and what a what an unconventional novel in um, in so many ways. Um, I think one of the ways that the Fortune Men is so unconventional is that it is based quite uh, strongly on on real events and uh, events that are in the in in the public domain, and that if you go onto onto the internet, you can you can you can find out about and you can um, yeah you, you can inform yourself about. Um, so where I'd like to begin is by talking about your first contact with this story, uh, how you first learned about the, this miscarriage of justice that is the heart of the Fortune Men, and why you not only decided to write about it, but specifically to turn it into a novel. So I first read about Mahmoud Matan in 2004 in a British tabloid, a double-page spread about what had happened to him. By that stage, um, in 2004, it was known as a miscarriage of justice. Mm -hmm. He was the first ever um, case sent to a new um, commission, the Criminal Case Review Commission, to to look over these potential historic miscarriages of justice. And they found that in his case, it was a miscarriage of justice. So this pretty right-wing tabloid was writing about him in a sympathetic way, but also with some of that kind of schlocky details, you know, um, of what had happened, the murder itself, um, the, the Britain having a death penalty at that time in 1952, and the tragedy of it, as well as, I guess, um, the sensationalism of what had happened. Mm-hmm. And it caught my eye immediately because I was looking at a man, a Somali man in a British newspaper from the 1950s, and I just couldn't understand what had brought him here and what had en- how, how he ended, had ended up being executed for a murder he didn't commit in Cardiff. And then I found out that my father knew him. Um, they had arrived in Britain at the same time in 1947, both as sailors. 
they were from the same hometown and the story then became much more intimate and I was mm. actually trying to write a, a script about Mahmoud Matan that was my first ever kind of creative project and that script involved research um, automatically for me because everything involves research um, and in that research I found out that my father had known him and I then became aware of my father's own story, which became Black Mamba Boy. Mm -hmm. This story wasn't written immediately in any fashion as a novel or as a script, but stayed with me for the next 17 years. And it was in 2015 that it really came back to me with force and demanded to be written. And the reason it's a novel is rather than a script. And it could be either, and I'm hoping now that it will be turned into a TV um, screenplay, is that with a novel, I feel fully in control. Mm -hmm. There's a privacy to it, an intimacy to it, mm. a control over the material. There's no negotiation. And in Mahmoud's case, I, there was, I did so much research on this that I had to, I had to allow that research to piece together. And I think over those uh, 11 years before I started uh, writing, it, it had knotted itself together in my mind. When I finally sat down to write, it was extremely quick. Mm. Um, I didn't have to make many decisions. All of it seemed very fully formed. And I think that could, could only have happened as a novel. I don't think that ease would have been the case if it, if it had been uh, to begin with a film. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that research because one of the things that becomes clear immediately to readers is how richly researched the the book feels so and, and researched on two levels and I'd like to talk about them both maybe in order the first level is the the life and times in Cardiff in 1952 which uh, as I say is so um, so richly portrayed with so much kind of uh, precise detail about the uh, you know the, the the different neighborhoods, the different communities, the different uh, the different streets, the way people interact with each other, the the different products they use, the kind of shops they go to, mm -hmm. and then on the other side, which we'll come to in a moment, there's the there's the personal side of it. There's the there's the there's the people, particularly Mahmoud, but but the the other surrounding characters. Um, so on those of those two levels of research, beginning with uh, the let's say the epochal research, the research of Cardiff in the in the in the early 1950s, how did you come to inhabit this this city, which uh, I don't know well, but I can only assume has changed dramatically in the past 70 years? Yes and no. <laughs> hmm. It has changed in some ways, but not in others, and the segregation has not changed very much, hmm. sadly. Um, I was there not uh, in late October and I experienced a, an instance of discrimination. So I don't think, sadly, it's changed uh, very much. But the things that I couldn't have lived myself um, were the detail and the, the, the research that went into those elements were really fascinating to me. It was no chore hmm. to sort of immerse myself fully um, in that particular period of time, I found it interesting because it was just after the Second World War and the Holocaust. Um, it was that period of change in Britain. So mm -hmm. Tiger Bay, where all of these foreign sailors and the British wives settled and the multi multiracial, multicultural children that they had. That was something very familiar to us in 21st century Britain, but mm -hmm. very strange in 1950s Britain. So it was a way of saying, well, this was how they were perceived from the outside, but this is how I perceived them, trying to keep that dual perspective on it all. And I had the case file. Um, thankfully, it had been opened before I needed it by another researcher who I who I came to get to know and work with called Chris Phillips, who was also writing about Mahmoud Matan, but a nonfiction account. Hmm. So everything was open. I could read the police interviews, the court transcripts, all of the exchanges, between uh, the bureaucracy and this this Somali young man, so, and I found those that I found that first reading of those documents so shocking because even now, uh, years later, almost seventy years later, I had I knew that Mahmoud was innocent, but in, within that case file, he was still guilty. Mm. His guilt was still maintained by those papers, those official papers, and knowing the ways that the police concocted 
the case against him. It's so shocking to see how convincing they were. They were their own novelists. They were their own fiction writers, giving him um, motivation, um, characterization as this dangerous, awful man who would steal money and murder a woman and then Mm. waste it all at at the horse's. And even though I knew he was innocent, I thought, oh, my God, he's guilty. <laughs> um, and then I had to unpick how that happened. And it's because he doesn't give a great account of himself in court. And then I I also had to then think, well, why didn't he? And that goes back to the social circumstances of the 1950s and Cardiff, where you are, as a black man, um, you are constantly on edge. You are constantly feeling as if you're about to be humiliated, cheated, mm-hmm. attacked. Uh, abused in some way and Mahmoud had decided he wasn't going to take any more of that mm-hmm. so he was very blunt with the police hostile with them um, and what we've been told is that if someone is innocent you know that they look innocent and they're mm-hmm. not argumentative and they're not sarcastic <laughs> mm-hmm. because you can't afford to be but he was and the more I got to know him through this archive which was both both faulty and both accurate the more I loved him, the more I got angry at him, the more I wanted to save him. And yeah, it wasn't a question of then of research to to make sure that the reader believed that I knew what I was talking about. It was much deeper than that. And it was more of mm. a kind of communion with mm. Mahmoud and the other characters. Mm. And was that um, so communion mainly through through the archive? Because you mentioned earlier that your father had known him as well. Mm. Was there was there also the the process of sort of in chatting with your father, maybe interviewing other people who who may have known him, although I suspect there probably aren't that many people around these days. I managed to find a few people in their 90s. One Mm. uh, was a Somali sailor who was 92 and remembered everything. He was with Mahmoud on his wedding day and then they had gone to sea for about eight months. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, he was the one who said to me that Mahmoud had, he used a Somali term which means that he'd thinned out that he'd uh-huh. I think basically he'd gone off the rails but was also struggling struggling psychologically personally so he was also isolated from the Somali community by the time mm. all of this had happened and then I also met another 90 year old who was a watchmaker and was still at work as a watchmaker in Portobello Market <laughs> in a shop that I must have walked past thousands of times <laughs> over the last 20 years and he was a prosecution witness uh, on a BC Ocean, a watchmaker um, who said that Mahmoud had stolen a watch from him. And then, then they had, uh-huh. they'd had a tussle in the street. And by speaking to him, he's told me how the police had behaved, that they weren't interested when he'd first reported the issue with Mahmoud. And it was only later after the murder that they'd cruised past him on the street in Tiger Bay and told him to get in the car mm-hmm. uh, and let him know that they wanted him to be a, a Uh, prosecution witness even though he knew nothing about this murder there was nothing that he could tell them but he was just another person used to create a negative picture of Mahmoud Mm -hmm. so just those two men and I met others you know people that um, were maybe younger but knew some of the story and grew up in that environment and knew different characters involved but just those two elderly men sparked my imagination and they also they could also reveal to me some of Mahmoud's experiences. Mm-hmm. So Olabisi and Mahmoud hadn't got on as 20-something-year-old immigrant men. But in hindsight, um, Olabisi had respect for him. Mm-hmm. And he kept saying, you saw what they did to him? You saw what they did to him? And that was, I think, because he knew that the same thing could have happened to him. Mm. No one was safe. And Mahmoud was particularly belligerent with the police. But then you didn't have to be for them to pursue you. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's fascinating because when you've described the um, the the sources that you used to get to know Mahmoud, whether that be the the archives of the the trial or some of the people that he knew, sort of overwhelmingly, these these would have been things uh, which portrayed Mahmoud in a broadly negative light because Ooh. of the 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 situation at the time, and particularly thinking of the the police archives and the trial. And yet, the Mahmoud we meet in your book, is an incredibly charismatic uh, individual. Um, And I'm really curious about how that uh, understanding of him uh, evolved for you. Well, I think primarily Laura, his wife, Mm -hmm. um, 
she spoke about him with such love and respect and mourning that you couldn't you had to see that other side of him because mm-hmm. 60 50 years later she was still obsessed with him mm-hmm. and thinking that he was the best thing that had ever happened to her and his loss was the worst thing that ever happened to her so she she kept that good memory of him alive um and then also you know someone like Olabisi the first thing he said about Mahmoud was he looked good you know mm-hmm. that charisma that style that swagger you don't necessarily have to like the person but you do recognize that mm-hmm. um and that was the case with him he was someone that people noticed mm-hmm. and when you see the first picture of him when he's just arrived in Britain and it's in his uh on his semen card the 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 passport photo he looks really good he's uh-huh. smiling his shoulders are broad his hair's all slicked down he's someone you know at the at the in the bloom of youth mm-hmm. um and that's an easy easy person to to feel empathy for and to be interested in and mm-hmm. the more difficult man a few years later who's heartbroken i think and and difficult and stressed you know primarily stressed i think by by the poverty by the discrimination by the feeling that his wife and children were slipping away from him mm-hmm. that was all part of the complex man that i started to commune with and you know i i feel like i could hear him and i could i one of the things that with when i was writing about my own father i think i was probably quite circumspect in what i would think or allow myself where mm-hmm. i'd allow myself to go as a writer and that wasn't the case with mahmoud so i started to think okay well he's not someone who's interested in saying that he's a perfect man he gambles mm-hmm. i think he probably drank a bit um he was a young single man for all intents and purposes you know his wife had legally separated from him so i wanted to take him on that on that basis of someone who wasn't willing he wasn't interested in hiding anything of himself mm-hmm. and that allowed me to go further as a writer i think one thing um when we we have as readers when discovering mahmoud and discovering how how sort of charismatic and um and intriguing and interesting he is as a as a person is that it reminds us that um even though as you said there are lots of things particularly about the the immigrant experience which he had in common with with your father and with uh, some of the people you spoke about mm. also each life is unique individual e- unique each life is is particular each life is special and i think that's one of the most powerful things about the novel and because i think often particularly when people are condemned for a crime even mm. if as in mahmoud's case uh, they are later uh, they are later proven to be innocent yeah. somehow that crime and the circumstances around it come to utterly define the, yes. the person yes and the same with the murder victim as well the fact that mm-hmm. she was murdered takes over her life story which is such mm-hmm. a cruel twist of fate and then these two individuals who didn't who barely knew each other are then entwined their names mm-hmm. are always enti- entwined in history and i found that really touching um because mm-hmm. before that you know they'd lived in their own minds and had their own dreams and expectations and disappointments and resentments and uh family histories mahmoud is someone who is pretty different to my father he grew up with much more privilege i think uh, comfort mm-hmm. my dad um was a street boy but mahmoud had grown up the youngest of five boys in hargeisa mm-hmm. and his dad had a shop and had some lorries and there was no reason for him to leave as there was mm. for my father he could he could have had a very comfortable life in hargeisa but he he chose to do mm-hmm. something different so again that makes him an interesting character to me because um the type of people that became sailors were self-selecting mm-hmm. it wasn't just about economic need and then the ones that not only maybe came here once or twice and then decided actually it's not the life for me the ones who stayed are also another group a particular mm. group and i my father was one of them but quite different to Mahmoud so all of those similarities and differences that you're constantly playing around with the choices that people make the 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 forks in the road and you know fate as well i'm sure all of mm. these men would have believed in fate um mm. and thought that they were constantly in a dialogue with their own fate that is that- interesting That's what we definitely get uh, the impression of with uh, Mahmoud in the book is this kind of this idea of not only that he is yeah that he believes in fate but in some way he is um a man of destiny yeah. and in 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 a way I think that's something which makes him an in- incredibly relatable character because I think we all have this idea there's a moment yes. and it's it's late on in the book when he's in prison where he's kind of he's he's kind of reflecting about how 
the world would essentially be in some way sort of fundamentally impoverished without him. Um, And there is a way in which that's sort of, that's true for us all because, you know, just by our very absence, the world is impoverished. But that's not really what we mean when we think that. It's it's in some way that like our sort of, our presence, our contribution is in some way fundamental to the the world's good functioning. Your existence is at the the centre of your own (laughs) thoughts. Mm. And of course, in Mahmoud's case, it was true when he was killed um, by the government, his wife and his children's lives were completely distorted from that moment on. Mm-hmm. Um, he describes, you know, thinking that their life would go from color to black and white. And I think that is what happened. And they, they really suffered without him. Mm-hmm. Just a little, a little bit more about the, um, the sort of the, the other characters in the book. I mean, you mentioned about, you mentioned his wife, Laura, mm-hmm. and how you, you got to know her. And we also have the, um, the murder victim as well. And as you said, like her, she's like a fundamental part of this story too. And you, you take time in the book to, to introduce us to her, to, to get to, know, to allow us to get to know the circumstances of the murder and also the impact it had on, on her family as well. Um, yeah. Was it more difficult finding out and getting to know these characters because they didn't have the kind of the police archives, because even though those ones with Mahmoud were, you know, in some way uh, adulterated by prejudice, they were still there. Whereas I can imagine sort of murder victims in a sense, they don't even get that. Particularly if they're women, I think, you know, the sort of use were hardened to the idea of the dead woman, who's Mm. just the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. Um, And the strange thing was actually, I wanted to know more, but then I kept stumbling on more information about the family Um, Mm. in different archives, in the Royal Air Force archives in London and then in another archive in Cardiff. And it felt as if there was something that I couldn't avoid. I didn't Mm. intend to make them a a large part of the novel, but then the more I found out, the more unusual their own backstory was. Um, One surprising thing after another, and I thought, wow. Um, As well as having an interest in in them as women, as, you know, independent women trying to live um, in very patriarchal post-war Britain Mm -hmm. Um, and the fact that they were Jewish um, second generation um, migrants to Britain that was all familiar and interesting but I there was also some very unusual things such as uh, the couple uh, Diana and Ben who had Mm -hmm. volunteered for the RAF before the second world war broke out because they were so angered by what Hitler was doing in Germany um, to people like them I thought that was really brave and powerful and interesting. And it was also a history that I didn't know. I think this Mm. novel was a lot of, there was a lot of learning in it for me because the Second World War is taught to death in British schools, but in a really crude way. Mm -hmm. So I would have loved to have known about British Jewish people who'd gone to war. Why Mm -hmm. that social history is completely absent or um, the history of the Merchant Navy and their engagement with the wars, both the First Mm -hmm. and the Second World War. So it felt as if I was trying to uh, fill in these gaps that I was quite angry I had mm-hmm. in my knowledge of things. Well, uh, concerning uh, Mahmoud's family, um, Laura as well, what, she's such a um, sort of a fascinating character as well. Now, a lot of the, um, the contact that we have with Laura is in her relationship with Mahmoud. I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I... If I remember rightly, I think that there are very few scenes where we see Laura alone, alone, and she's always sort of in, uh, yeah. sort of in, in conversation, in communion with Mahmoud. Yeah. Um, but I think that's something really interesting about that portrayal of a, a mixed race marriage, particularly uh, in 1952, and what it meant for uh, Mahmoud to be uh, married to a white woman, and what it meant for for Laura to be married to um, to a black man. Did you get a sense that the the stakes were fundamentally different for for each of them, or was there something sort of comparable in the in the experience at that there time? There was something comparable because he was a black Somali Muslim man mm-hmm. um, who would have been raised with expectations of his own or of his family's, um, and many of the Somali sailors didn't marry local women. There was a, a, I don't, I was about to say phobia. I don't know if that's the right word, but a fear mm-hmm. um, because of the consequences, partly, and also the cultural differences. So there's one scene where Mahmoud describes being very angry 
that his sons were being given pork mm-hmm. um, and he chucks the, the plate, he throws the plates out into the garden because he's so angry. So all of those sorts of things where, you know, he's, she's trying to acclimatize to his world, um, mm. which she didn't really do. She, they never moved to Tiger Bay. She always stayed in Adamstown where her family were. Um, and he came to join her on, in Adamstown. And she never converted to Islam like the way that some of the other wives did. Um, she, she she was quite firm in her own identity. Mm-hmm. And she had a family and she remained with her family and she made the family accept him as her husband, which was very unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, often girls like her would have been thrown out and that would be the end. And therefore they would have to absorb, uh, let themselves be absorbed into the husband's mm-hmm. uh, worlds because they had no other world to return to. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case. And they were both um, hovering, you know, in these in-between worlds especially with Mahmoud, she said, I remember Laura in an interview saying that sometimes it seemed as if he forgot he was black. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was fascinated by British ways and was constantly emulating the way that things were done here, which would have alienated him from the Somali community, which he, he was alienated from um, in many ways. So I think that they were both rebels. I think that they were both interested in doing things their own way mm-hmm. and that they were going to bend everyone else's expectations to their own will but it wasn't they were both very young Laura in particular was 17 when they got married and I think they Mm. didn't realize just how hostile the world would be yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the sort of the the tragedies of, of the novel, and I guess their their lives as well, is that it seems from both of their perspectives, neither quite fully reconciled themselves to to the relationship. I mean, we have the sense from from uh, from 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 Laura that she this the the idea of as you say kind of uh, embracing uh, Mahmoud's life entirely she sort of she retreats from it and approaches yes. him and retreats again and similarly with Mahmoud I think there's almost a certain sort of self criticism in a way like there's one moment where he reflects the potential. Uh, outcome that Laura will become one of those women who basically turns to black men just so they will kind of be hurt by them. Yeah, or something as, like as that. A form of self degradation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess that was how the white world saw women like mm-hmm. uh, men, women who married black men or Asian men, foreign men, that they were now bottom of the heap. Mm. So he would be aware of that. And would be trying to protect her because I guess if if you see girls in Tiger Bay being pimped out by their boyfriends or you know beaten up and all of these sorts of things, then there's a. It makes me wonder how Mahmoud would have perceived their relationship, mm-hmm. both in the way that you know oh people might think that's me and he was never violent he was never abusive. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that people didn't judge him that way and I I wonder how much of the police is hostility to him came from their anger at other black men who had mm-hmm. white girlfriends or wives. So Mahmoud had gone from being a wanderer um, to someone who'd stopped wandering and mm-hmm. had basically decided he was going to stay in Cardiff because that's where his wife and uh, children were, which I'm sure would have been a very odd decision to the other sailors because their whole mm-hmm. living was based on moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, the work that you would get in, in Cardiff or on land would be quite poorly paid in comparison and without at least the glamour of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. So he must have loved her a lot to change this whole way of life that he had. Mm-hmm. And maybe she also formed a, an anchor for him in a, in a life that had been quite unanchored for a long time. Um, but then she was a 17-year-old girl with three children back to back. So she's only 21 when all of this happened, or 22. Um, so she was also resisting this feeling of being tied down. So mm-hmm. they were both, I think, people who resisted or had a, had a struggle with being tied down. It wasn't until Mahmoud's third voyage, when his muscles were little hillocks atop his fine bones, that he made his way into the bowels of the ship where the real men worked. Still not furnace material, he'd been put to work in the coal bunkers as a trimmer, 
shuttling coal to the boilers where stokers, almost limp with exhaustion, threw it into the flames. The coal bunkers were pitch black and illuminated with just a single movable lamp. The floor roiled and pitched with the Atlantic waves and the trimmers staggered about as the coal slipped beneath their feet. On that ship, there had been a fire in the bunker, but not any normal blaze. There were no flames to see or smoke to smell, just a heat so intense from deep within the black heap that it forced a bulge in the steel bulkhead. The old Yemeni trimmer, Nasir, who could taste the quality of coal by biting into it, said it happened sometimes when too much new coal was piled up on top of old or when the bunker was sitting idle too long. He spoke of coal as if it was a fond but volatile friend, his bow legs blackened up to his baggy shorts. Yalla! Yalla! No way to put out the fire but to burn it, he shouted, shoving Mahmoud out of the way to rush through with his sharp-lipped wheelbarrow. They were joined on some watches by a Welshman who sang so deeply Mahmoud felt his voice in his ribs. At other times, a pair of identical Somali twins from Barbera, Rage and Roble, swung their shovels beside him. Those days, when the three Somalis were entombed and fell into the same hypnotic rhythm, the bunker felt almost like a mystical space. Their shovels plunging and flying up to the same beat, old work songs from the desert pulling their hoarse voices together in low, monotonous tones. The sweat, the pain, the heat, exorcising every last thought from their minds. A makeshift czar at the bottom of the sea. He would climb into his bunk in a ten-man cabin, choked with cigarette smoke and stale sweat, feeling as if he had been battered with hammers, his eyes wincing from the brightness of the light. But he fell asleep, still elated, his pulse in tune with the thump of the motors. Yalla! Yalla! No way to put out the fire but to burn it. Those were words to live by. You mentioned... Um... A moment ago, about the the way that uh, the way that white people uh, perceived um, their relationship and would interpret mm. their relationship, and as a reader, I think some of the most jarring moments in the novel are when we pass from being essentially in Mahmoud's head, um, in the kind of complexity of his thoughts and uh, and the sort of the the infinite nuance of his existence, to these moments when we are essentially getting the white gaze. So we're sort of ripped out yes. of Mahmoud and given the perspective of the yeah. police or the courts mm. or the lawyers. Yes. How, how was that for you to, to write? I mean, did you have to, was it sort of an exercise of will to kind of separate yourself from the sympathy, the empathy that you had for Mahmoud? No, I think, I think actually the scariest thing is how easy it is to access those racist mm. sports because we grow up around them. Right. I was just thinking earlier today about some of the things that kids said to me at school, you know, very deeply racist colonial attitudes that they had picked up from their parents who had picked mm -hmm. it up from their parents who'd picked it up from the, you know, the air. Yeah. Um, so when people use, they use very similar language nowadays, you know, um, the idea of savages, that, that savage mm -hmm. word savage has got such strong racist connotations but it's still used about people in yeah. court cases um so it's very very easy sadly um to to tune in to that way of thinking and i wrote the book the whole book with a real anger <laughs> with mm -hmm. a real rage inside me about why this had happened and how it had happened and to get through that or to it was important to not sugarcoat any of it mm. um the barrister who calls Mahmoud, his own barrister who calls Mahmoud a semi-civilized savage, savage mm. intended it to be a way of saying to the jury, you and I both know that he is not like us. He's inferior mm. to us. Um, and that nudge, nudge, wink, wink racism is something that's still with us. Um, mm. uh, it's, you know, if, if you follow court cases or police, um, incidents of police violence, both in the US or UK, probably, and in France, um, the same justifications are given again and again as to why mm. they've harmed black people or non-white people. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's, it's so important for Britain in particular to not deny this. Mm -hmm. we, we grew up 
we still grew up in a in a country where white supremacist ideas are pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Pretty normal. And and also certain ideas which I think society likes to imagine have been kind of consigned to the trash heap mm. of history. One thing we realize when we get into stories like those of Mahmoud is that they really aren't far from us at all. So, for example, with the um, the idea of the the savage, the other kind yeah. of the invention of that concept. One thing we see from when we're learning about Mahmoud's earlier life is that he met a guy who had essentially been displayed uh, yes. in a in a in a zoo, and yeah. this is something which is sort of like if you think that okay, so you've met, you've met people who were the same generation as Mahmoud, and Mahmoud yeah. knew somebody. Yeah, who had been put on on display? A few years older than him, and the last of those human zoos was in 1960 something in Belgium. My goodness. Okay. Um, And I we could even talk about how that same idea is alive in TV and film. Mm -hmm. Um, The number of films that portray Africans as you know wearing loincloths or animal skins and living in the bushes Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, is still too many, Um, but. Yeah, um, we're so close. We're so close to that violent, racially Darwinistic, uh, genocidal Mm -hmm. (laughs) world. Um, So it's Berlin who was um, in the human zoo in Germany. Mm. And I know his son. You know, that's one generation away. Yeah. But um, what I also wanted to get across is that these men lived in that world and had to navigate it. Mm -hmm. And navigate it they did. So yeah. Berlin was not traumatized or diminished or obviously diminished by what had happened to him. He, that was one chapter in a, in a long and complicated life story um, that made him distinguished <laughs> it, from the kind of very boring, ordinary people that he would have probably judged negatively mm-hmm. because he had seen so many things and experienced so many things. And I think there is a, there is a machismo about that. Mm. In, in hindsight, when you think about that 10-year-old boy who was being displayed as part of, uh, you know, a pyramid of human re- evolution, somewhere mm-hmm. at the bottom of that pyramid, that's terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, f- but for the boy and for this, for that boy's son, it's a much more complicated history. Mm-hmm. Just as a, as a quick aside, one thing that I was thinking about while reading the novel was um, an exhibition that I saw in Paris quite a few years ago now at the um, the Musée du Quai Branly, which is uh, not an unproblematic museum in mm. itself because it's uh, it's essentially a museum which displays stolen colonial art in a sort of yeah. a modern context, but essentially yes. essentially that. And but they did have this really interesting exhibition called The Invention of the Savage. Mm. And one thing that it detailed in very clear um in a very, very sort of clear museo- museography was the fact that this was not an accidental concept that just sort of that just sort of arose by sort of a misunderstanding between cultures or a misunderstanding of science or something like that but that in fact the colonial powers particularly Britain and France and and the the powers in the United States with regard to yeah. Native Americans yeah. intentionally defined uh, Native Americans African people as savages in order to better exploit them of course of course to dehumanize and therefore harm and destroy mm-hmm. them and to uh, take what they had as well. Um, I was just watching, and it's so it's such recent history. In Canada, mm-hmm. we're finding all of these, um, or reading about all of these mass graves of Indigenous children. The same history is there in Australia. My father used to travel constantly to Australia, mm-hmm. including from when um, they had a white Australia policy, and someone like him would not have been able to settle, would not have been allowed mm-hmm. to settle in Australia. I was watching a documentary about Tracy Emin, who's got African ancestry Mm. on her father's side. Um, And I think the African person is um, her great grandfather, Mm -hmm. but her own father was not allowed to settle in in Australia because he was too dark. Mm -hmm. So this is just, this is the way that people just expected the world to be. I can think back to things that I've been told um, which are intimately connected to that idea of Africans as being savages. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, even the small way that people might say, oh, I never go to that area because I'm scared. 
and mm-hmm. it happens to be a predominantly black area. So I just think, what are you scared of? Is yeah. when I go there, I see mothers and children and butcher shops and restaurants and nothing threatening at all. So what exactly are you afraid of? Yeah. And that's one thing which is illustrated um, in the novel at one particular moment, which which really stuck with me when uh, Mahmoud is already in prison and he's um, he's thinking about um, shaving his head mm. uh, as a sort of as a as an act essentially of uh, religious devotion of, of, of cleansing. Yeah, and yet then he also reflects what a, a white jury who are already kind of conditioned yes, to, to hate him. Would 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 make of this man who has suddenly um, shaved off all his hair, and that's just like the the depressing irony of yeah. that. And also the culture clash, where these mm-hmm. these two cultures have very different connotations of things. So in Britain, your your head is shaven in an asylum or mm-hmm. in prison, um, and in Islam you shave it for for Hajj, um, and in Hinduism you shave it after a bereavement. Mm-hmm. This is what you get when you have people from different worlds judging each other mm-hmm. and especially when the power is so distorted between one and the other you know there's no one in that jury who will understand Mahmoud's shaven head could mm-hmm. be a positive thing or a, a harmless thing mm-hmm. um, and that 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 power imbalance is again another thing that's still with us yeah one one uh, one moment that i i really appreciated as well on the subject of the culture clash was when um we get a glimpse into how somali people view or viewed perhaps at that time viewed british people yeah. and they say it's like oh they're also that simple or servile people uh, <laughs> yeah. i have the quote here peasants satisfied working their lord's lands and i just thought this, <laughs> it, it takes this kind of again these kind of prejudices these ambient prejudices which kind of infuse our culture yeah it just flips it on its head and i think that's one of the things a novel does so so brilliantly yes and that was actually i was having fun with that because i remember you know, over the last few years with the war on terror, how Muslims have been described as as hating the freedoms of the West. Mm. When actually it was the West <laughs> that went about the rest of the world taking away many of their freedoms, both right. social, political, in, in many, many ways. So Somalis, which are who are generally a nomadic group of people with not much hierarchy, it's not absent, but there's not much in comparison to Britain, which was mm. so hierarchical and still is, um, they would have been pretty shocked um, when someone, when one person is telling another person that they remain their humble servant, but it's like mm-hmm. they would have thought, why, why are you their servant, and why is that something that you're proud of? And uh, that British hierarchy and that dominate that domination of one person over another is pretty strange in a Somali context. And also, their idea of justice was different. Mm-hmm. Where you know, in Britain, a life—if you took a life—it meant that you had to have your own life taken. And the Somalis sort of believed that, but also believed that there were ways there were ways around that. Mm-hmm. So you could compensate, or you know, p- different people would take responsibility for the actions of that one individual murderer mm-hmm. to to help negotiate. Um, and it was interesting for me to because I've also been raised in a British Western moral framework, and it was interesting for me to step out of that and sort of mm-hmm. say, well what was wrong with the way that other people were doing things? And mm-hmm. now we have a very uniform, homogenous world. I think whether it's the Muslim world that's become more homogenous or Western ideas and habits and behaviors that have become much more um, prevalent across the world. And we've, we've lost a lot of variation. And mm-hmm. I, that's a pretty worrying thing. Well, one, one element where that variation um, is apparent um, and I'm not quite sure I, c- I could fully articulate it, but um, it's on that co- concept of freedom, actually, which you just mm. mentioned, um, which seems to be something fundamental to Mahmoud's character. Like it seems yeah. to be, seems to sort of to, to drive him. And yet the way that you present it in the book, it, it feels like a sort of an inherently Somali uh, way of living. concept of freedom. And yeah, indeed, way of living, which mm. is it's some way sort of, and again, as I say, I, I, I could have, I think I got a sense of it, but not one I can particularly articulate, that in some way different from a what might be called a, a European or a Western concept of freedom. I think so. And it is hard to pin down because, of course, mm. by saying I can instantly think about all the ways that it doesn't exist, especially for women or for minorities. Oh, sure. Um, but my grandmother was someone who also um, had that similar idea of freedom, my, my father's mother. 
where she got she eloped at the age of 17 and then lived around the Middle East and East Africa by herself. She got married six mm -hmm. times. She didn't hang around waiting for anyone to give her permission to do anything. And I think it was a it was a freedom born of necessity, mm -hmm. um, of nomadism as a way of life, of um, growing up in a society where you didn't have royalty or aristocrats or even landowners. Mm. Your clan loosely owns the land. It doesn't really even own it, but takes possession of it. Yeah. Um, and people disappeared all the time. So even from a very young age, and I, it was a really beautiful, there was a beautiful story my father told me of him and a girl cousin when they were in Somalia, Somaliland, uh, British Somaliland as it was then. So probably in the 1930s, just mm -hmm. walking off by themselves when they were <laughs> 10 years old or even younger to find their camels. Um, and you have these massive open expanses and there's no authority and everything is elastic. Family mm. connections are elastic and life is elastic. You may mm. come back, you may not. And that's really going to sort of shape the, the way course. that your consciousness engages. Yeah, and that adds to the cruelty of Mahmoud being pinned in that cell, mm. locked up in that cell, when before that his life was just so open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's just just talk about that because you've alluded to it um, earlier, and, I, and because this is a novel based on real events, it's no sort of spoiler to say mm. that the, you know, the, the story ends in in, in prison and, and you know in in, in execution. Um, there is something particularly heartbreaking about following the trial as presented in this book yeah. sort of watching a uh, a man who we have got to know in all his complexity and nuance and backstory being reduced to this image of a of a criminal as a, a savage as you said yeah. while simultaneously being intentionally excluded from the process by the the language and conventions of and the, hierarchy uh, of the institution of Indeed, yeah. indeed. So it wasn't that unusual for the police to frame people for, mm. for, for crimes. Um, and that idea that, and even now, most barristers are white men from a certain social class who've been to Oxford or particular public schools. And that was even more the case in the 1950s. Mm. So the judge and the, the, judge, the judges and, of, you know, the whole system is one that will consume you. If you were outside of that system, um, you are there as almost just you're on a factory line to be mm -hmm. consumed. And that's on a class level and a on a racial level. Um, so Mahmoud is someone who it, the ability for him to think he was beyond these parameters and beyond these rules is it comes up against the hardness of, of that of those rules in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I don't, I don't think I could take on the system. <laughs> um, maybe in small ways I've been able to. I think from my backstory, I'm not the kind of person who would normally become a novelist or mm -hmm. um, have any of the uh, acclaim that I've uh, been given. So there is a feeling of me having gone against the grain, mm -hmm. but in more, more serious ways, I, I would be afraid of taking on the state. Mm -hmm. And Mahmoud, I think, in his ignorance and also his gutsiness, was not afraid of taking on the state. And mm -hmm. nor was Laura. Again, Laura, mm -hmm. who was completely disempowered um, after his death, she was the first person to ever make the British state acknowledge a historic miscarriage of justice. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. That's inspiring. And it allows someone like me, who's more, I think, circumspect, to think, gosh, things are possible beyond your expectations. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that was another attraction to the story is the fact that they had to, they had to suffer in a way so that all of us could be pushed out of our comfort. Mm -hmm. I think um, where I'd like to, to finish is um, returning, I guess, uh, from Mahmoud presented as a, <laughs> as a, cr a criminal and having his mm. kind of, uh, his sort of, yeah, his complexity stripped away from him uh, to, something that seems to be the kind of core to his character in a way, and which doesn't leave him 
almost until the very end, which is that he seems to be an inherent optimist. Mm. Um, and that's something which, again, maybe that contributes to the the, the charisma of this person. Maybe that contributes yeah. to his charm. He's not a miserable man. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. And but but also there seems to be something that whether whether he would have expressed it as such, but this seems to give him a kind of a a philosophical position and a philosophical approach to life and to what's happening. Even though you know he's he's despairing about it, he's getting angry about it. Yeah. But that, that that seems to be, it, in some way, that seems to be a core which sustains him even mm. like right up to the the steps of the the gallows. Yes, and he, yeah, that morning of the execution, he still thought, and he shook Pierre Point's hand, thinking that it was a man who'd come to say everything was fine and it was all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it wasn't. It was this terrible um, executioner. But. Yeah, I do believe. I don't know what made me believe Mahmoud was such an optimist. I think it did come through in the interviews he had in prison with the doctor, um, and also what re- Laura reported. What Laura reported him saying to her as well, all through the, the process. Um, and I, I think all of these men, you know, you don't cross Africa, you don't walk from Somaliland to South Africa if you're not an optimist mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, or someone who's um, very nervous of taking risks Mm -hmm. so again it's part of that that group being a self-selecting group of individuals of unusual individuals um and Mahmoud was probably even more an extreme version of of that group but it it makes him lovable it it makes you see the attraction that Laura Mm -hmm. would have had for had for him um but it's also part of the tragedy of it because Mm -hmm. you know that that optimism was misplaced yeah. Well, that is, uh, unfortunately, all we've got time for. Um, Fortune Men, such a wonderful book. It's available, of course, from Shakespeare and Company, from the Bricks and Mortar store, online from our website or from uh, your local neighborhood independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may be based. Um, all that remains for me to say is, uh, Nadifa Mohammed, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by recommending us to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.